Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. I'm super stoked and uh, a little nervous because I, I really like, uh, I've been listening to this uh, gentleman's uh, uh, podcast and some of the work that he's done and I, it's pretty intense. Uh, so I want to take this conversation and I want to make sure that uh and, and I really appreciate him sharing all this stuff because I think other people need to hear this. But anyway, without further ado, uh, Mr. Jay, Jay Schiffman, speaker, coach, uh, mental health advocate, and also the host of Choose Your Struggle podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this one. You know, I do I do a lot of these and you know how it is as a as a as a guy who's on kind of doing the same thing as I am. That some of them uh you can do in your sleep. Some of the conversations you 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 leave and immediately you're like I don't even know what I talked about there. I was kind of on autopilot. <laughs> uh but I got to say I've been doing this now for over 3 years, uh over 200 interviews and the ones that I look forward to the most are the ones that I know that I can't be on autopilot for that I actually get to have a real conversation. So very excited to be here. Well, I I don't know how to even do small talk. So I kind of dive <laughs> into it, man. Wonderful. That's, that's the yeah. way, you know, it was always an issue with dating too. Like you start talking to somebody like, how's the weather? Who gives yeah. a shit how the weather is? Let's talk about some real interesting stuff. So, so it's funny you say that because you introduced me mental health advocate, right? Uh, I was on a date. And first date, we didn't really know each other that well. We met on one of the apps, right? 
One of the first things I tell her within an hour, we were over drinks. I get into the details of my struggle with OCD. Uh, I'm with you, man. I don't care what you think about the weather. I want to talk about the real shit. And for me, that's, you know, mental health, it's addiction, it's drug use, and uh, went right in. And thankfully, this this woman went with me on that date. So got to got to give it out to her. But I'm with you, man. I'm right there. Yeah, no, for sure. It's uh, it's too, especially like I'm in L.A., so everybody wants to kind of be surfacey for a minute. And then talk about, you know, their yoga practices and and their green drinks and all that stuff. By the way, I have a yoga practice and I do green <laughs> drinks, too. So I'm part of the culture, too. So I'm not just saying it. But I, I really want to learn more about you. I've, I've listened to a lot of your content and I uh, kind of uh, participated in some of that stuff. But I, let, let's start with where did you grow up? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, and I'm sorry I, about that, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, as a sports fan, so am I. Um, it, it, it was, it, but you know what? It, there is something about being a, a Cincinnati sports fan, and that is you get accustomed to losing very quickly. Uh, you know, I have friends who live in, let's say, Boston, and, you know, one of their teams has a bad year, and they're like, we don't know what to do with this. And it's like, Cincinnati, uh, this is every year. Uh, we don't know what winning is like in, in Cincinnati. Um, but other than that, I had a very idyllic childhood, you know, oldest of four boys. So I always had my, my ready made best friends, both parents in the home, both parents had plenty of time for us, never missed a, a baseball game. Uh, grandparents that live right down the street. I mean, the, nothing a kid can complain about, except for the fact that I lived in the suburbs. Other than that, great childhood. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm originally from Philly. Uh, so the whole sports uh, thing is, uh, it's inherent to us too. We, I think before the Phillies won the World Series, they were the losingest franchise of, of all time. And I think the Eagles, until they won uh, recently, they were uh, one of the only teams that really didn't have a Super Bowl. They had a championship in 1960, but, you know, that didn't count. So, Well, I'm in Philly now, uh, oh. and I love it, man. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, you y'all had it rough, but trust me, this is a step up. This is, yeah, I go to Philly's games, and y'all have 150 million rosters, and the Reds are down there at whatever, spending pennies. <laughs> so, uh, but I love Philly, man. It's it's We're so glad to be here. Uh, doing the work that I do, uh, I was actually living in Charleston, South Carolina before this. I went from Cincinnati to Charleston, and you can't do what I do down there. You can't in the South. You cannot talk about harm reduction, drug use, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but in Philly, I've got a community here, groups I work with, you know, hands on, love it. Uh, and so, definitely a big shout out to your hometown, man. Love being in Philly. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. Appreciate it. Until the winter time comes. Until that's, yes, that's <laughs> fair. Cold. Yeah. Um, so you already uh, kind of talked about your childhood. Uh, was there any signs when you were growing up of like struggle or like feeling a little bit different or how did you start like uh, seeing some of those challenges or did you even uh, as a kid? I mean, that's that's tough because you can look back and see signs, you know, uh, the, the, as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Um, I, I, when I was young, I think, uh, you write off, uh, 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 let me say it this way, actually, to, to put it in better perspective. So I was born in 86. Uh, in 1986, there were only roughly 350,000 young people in the, in the United States treated for uh, ADHD. Now, 
at that time, that was in, that's pretty rare. 350,000 young people in the United States is not that many kids. Um, but then you fast forward to when I'm diagnosed with that particular uh, umbrella disorder, ADHD, in the late 90s. Uh, we're talking 90, 1997 or so, about 11 years old. Uh, and that number is 2 million, right? That is an explosion of this diagnosis. Now, by that time, I'm given diagnosis of ADHD, uh, of, of um, OCD, uh, anxiety, depression. And those things are growing, right? I mean, this is not... Uh, in the late 90s, going into the 2000s, that's no longer the rarity. Uh, it, I, I like to say it this way. It wasn't rare when I was in, in, born in the 80s. We just didn't talk about it. We didn't, Those things weren't out in the open the way that they start to be in the 90s and then really explode in the 2000s. Well, I think your generation gained an H uh, when it was my generation. When uh, So I was in high school in 86 when you were born already. And I, w- I got diagnosed with ADD. Uh, when I was about 14 or so. So there was no H at that time. It wasn't a hyperactive central deficit disorder. And and also calling it a disorder, I thought was really interesting because to me, I thought it was my superpower. Now you're, <laughs> now you're telling me it's a disorder. Like I can do multiple things at once. And then, you know, not not to kind of develop and start going into the cannabis thing, but that's, that's one of the reasons why I found cannabis to be yeah. sort of my medicine because of ADD and I was put on prescription medication and it sucked. And I'm not saying it didn't work like air code work, but it, it did help me to focus if that's what they want to do. But yeah. the, any, any emotion that I actually had w- wasn't, was missing. So you you just become this robot and it, there's no feeling. So I, I was lucky enough to find that, but you know, in, in going through, uh, I think you mentioned somewhere that the way that ADHD was being treated with prescription medication, and if I got your quote wrong, tell me it was like drugging a generation or something like that. And I was like, man, this man hit it nail on the head. <laughs> I was just like, why are we prescribing? Like, to, I was an ADD coach and I coached a lot of uh, really mm, – successful individuals that were trying to optimize their lives better to take better advantage of their ADD or ADHD. And, you know, to, to come and diagnose somebody and just kind of give them a pill. Why is it even a disorder was my question, but yeah, I want to get your thoughts on that before I continue. So, uh, so I want to be very clear. I appreciate uh, what bringing up the subject of the drugging of the generation, that is sort of my take on a really well done uh, and, and a must read. Um, I guess you would call it a long form. It's not, it's not a book, but it's not really a short article uh, called the drugging of the American, it's the drugging of the American boy, I think is what the full title is. Um, and it's a, again, just brilliantly laid out uh, research into how the, the, the way that we learn has really never fit our education system in the United States, right? But back in the day, no one really cared because you had this education system built around the harvest and, and the, the all these other external factors. But then we go into the modern age and 
we don't modernize our education system in the process. And so you have people living in a more modern lifestyle who are now forced to learn in a very antiquated way. And instead of going, all right, this isn't working, we need to overhaul education system, they decide to essentially, as you as you've said, and I've said before, drug a generation of people to try to force people who don't really fit into this education model through the education system of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was their, the, all again, I'm bastardizing this article or this, this long form piece, but the, 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 the outcome of this was this explosion in the diagnosis of ADHD. And by the way, you know, that number that I gave going from 350,000 a year to 2 million was just the tip of the iceberg. You know, that was in the late 90s. Flash, for, flash forward 25 years, um, we're over 4.5 million people now. So this is continuing. Um, and I want to, I always put this caveat, this little footnote in here to say that I am not saying that every single person who is medicated for ADHD or, or ADD, which is the um, underneath that umbrella, uh, doesn't need, you know, doesn't have that uh, diagnosis or, or, or doesn't need medication. I am saying that there are a lot of people who probably do fit the the, the mold for ADHD as, as I clearly did, um, but don't need the, 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 the medication and don't need, as you so perfectly put, to be made into zombies when they're teenagers, right? Mm-hmm. That's the issue here. It's not the diagnosis itself. We can do a lot with a good diagnosis. What it is is the over-medication that is a problem. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting conversation because uh, in terms of just um, – Education. I didn't think about it that way because, you know, as a student, I would be the kid who sits in class and I have multiple thoughts that pop into my head all the time. So it's like one thought and the teacher calls and you're sort of spaced out or else I'm disruptive. And the reason why I'm disruptive, and it sounds like I can't sit still, but, you know, I need to pass a note. I need to make a joke. I need to talk to my friend because really I'm bored. Yeah. And, 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 and this is, I didn't think about it this way because, and you write about the education system. I think Sir Ken Robinson had a couple of amazing TED talks on this thing about the education system coming from, uh, you know, the United Kingdom, where they just basically had this one type of uh, protocol that they would go out and start uh, converting people to Christianity in, in different parts of the world. So they taught everybody exactly the same way. And we're still using that antiquated system. And, you know, there's there's Montessori. There's a couple other uh, schools that are doing something a little bit different. But I, I didn't think about equating the whole, uh, you know, ADD with the education system. But it makes total sense because everybody learns in their own way. It's right. not, you know, I went, I finished high school. I went to college. I did all that stuff. So it's not like I'm incapable of it, but I had to do it at my own, in my own way. So to give somebody a pill or whatever it is to make them like everybody else, that's the sheepish mentality that I think, uh, you know, people want everybody to conform a certain way without personalizing the whole uh, uh, education system. It's not about the the kid. Maybe it's about the teacher, how you're actually, you know, presenting this information to everybody. Not one size fits all. And that's right. And and you use the the, the, the word that I think we do need to, to, to harp on more here, and that's boredom, right? It, it, education can be 
very stimulating. It can be a lot of fun, uh, but th- the way it's set up now is not, right? I was talking about this the other day, and I said uh, I was describing why I am able to do literally everything on my podcast, right? And I do everything from booking the guest, the host, to, to preparing for it, to editing, and I described it as I am not the type of person who can, you know, if opera was my thing, could stand just watch an opera. I, I just physically cannot do that. However, if there's an opera going on and on the side of the stage there's a basketball game and I have a notepad and I could brainstorm, I am in heaven. I am doing the best that I can possibly do in that moment because I'm going to be able to st- uh, be stimulated enough that then my brain is going to be able to focus on what I'm doing, right? And so for the if you could see my office here, I mean, I have stuff in every available site because – that's how I know that if I have that stimulation, it allows me to my brain to kind of be looking at things while I'm also doing other work. I usually am working with podcasts on or, or music. That is how I have to work. And as an adult, I have embraced that, right? I mean, yeah. this is how I work. This is how I'm successful. As a child, that was not possible. And so then like you, I'm squirming in my seat. I'm distracted. I'm bothering other people because I am so bored that I need to do other things with that, with that energy. I mean, so, so well said, uh, I, in, in my research into ADD, uh, what happens is there's a, there's a depletion of dopamine. So our brain is always looking for that square dopamine. So it makes total sense. You, you want to have all the different things that gives you dopamine, but when it's done, you want to move on to something else. But if you don't have systems in place, you can get yourself in trouble because, you know, you, you can play video games for eight, nine hours a day, and that'll give you dopamine. They they design these things specifically for those reasons. Hey, let's kind of squirt dopamine as much as possible, but you're not really productive. So you, you have to kind of balance uh, the systems with that. But excellent way of describing it. Um, so let's go back to so the first thing that you uh, were sort of diagnosed with, uh, I guess, is ADHD, right? So how, how did, was that manifesting itself in the household or how, how did you start realizing that something is a little bit different? So there was sort of a perfect storm and that was that I, I was diagnosed with ADHD, but also, like I said, there was the issues of OCD, depression, anxiety, and there is enough overlap in some of these things that it's it's kind of hard to go okay that was ADHD that is you know right uh, i was i was talking to someone the other day who who I wanted to pick my brain because he had been recently given the diagnosis of OCD and this was kind of like, oh my God. Uh, and he knows that I struggle with that. And so we, we talked about that and he was going, wow, wow. I didn't know these were OCD signs. I thought that was my ADHD. And I said, I mean, the overlap is pretty strong in some cases between these two things. So it's hard to pinpoint, okay, this is this, this is that. But uh, I, I was very, um, rambunctious, right? I mean, as we've talked about, I, I really couldn't sit still. I I, I was very easily bored. Um, the, the the ways that, that it came out that got me in the most trouble was uh, I was one of those kids who didn't have a filter between their brain and their mouth. And that's <laughs> hilarious in a lot of situations and really horrible in a lot of other ones, um, especially in the classroom. That was always a bad thing. That that never that never led to, to good things. Um, and so that was sort of the, the biggest red flag where someone was like, OK, that kid needs medication. That was that was the big one. Um, but my anxiety also was very strong. Uh, so growing up, I was a baseball player. Uh, that was my 
my, my pride and joy. I was pretty good at it. Uh, I, I had a chance to play in college. Like that was my skill level, but I was a glove first player to the extreme because in the field, I was one of nine guys. There was no focus on me. Um, even when the ball was hit, I was already moving. And so I didn't have time to be anxious. Right. Um, I was an outfielder and, and a catcher. And so I was just in it. You know, there really isn't that moment to be, to be anxious, but at bat, I was frozen. I was so scared uh, with all the eyes on me that I didn't hit well. I, I, it wasn't a skill thing. In the cage, I was you know, creaming the ball. But when I got off to bat in, in a game, it was that anxiety would take over, and, and it was very difficult for me to, 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 to deal with that. And then on top of that, you've got the other issues of, of, with the OCD of the uh, obsessive thoughts um, and uh, the, the depression issues of sinking into t- some pretty strong funks. And so it, it was all a lot going on. And then you also have to remember that this is when I was 11, 12, 13, 14, right, going into high school even. And the beginning of that cycle is puberty. And then you go into high school and we all high school is tough as it is. And so then you add on top of this pressure cooker of a situation, my therapist giving me uh, one after another different medications, because the, not only was this the explosion of diagnosing ADHD, it was also the explosion of, of coming out with new medications to treat ADHD. And so between 11 and 15, when we finally settled on the drug I was on for the next six or seven years, I was on five or six different medications. Every appointment with my therapist would be, okay, let's try upping it. Okay, that's not working. Let's go to this next one. That's not working, whatever. And so there are going to be side effects. I mean, that's just how that works. There's going to be side effects. So you take all of this together, and obviously now with hindsight, you can go, that is not a recipe for success. Yeah, but, man, it's exactly what you said, especially when you're a teenager and you're transitioning over your hormones, you have all these different things, you have side effects and medication. Uh, At home, was it, like, how did the OCD manifest itself? Was it was it a mental thing where you were sort of uh, replaying the same movie over and over, like a PTSD type of uh, uh, thing? Or was it also that it manifest itself, I have to wash my hands 100 times a day? Like, w- w- how did it come out physically? Or it did, did it? So I was, I am very lucky that my OCD is much more on the obsessive side and less the compulsive side. So for those who don't know, um, the re- there's a reason that they call it obsessive compulsive, not compulsive obsessive, right? Uh, obsessive, uh, it, it has to do with the thoughts and, and the way that our brain uh, is, quite frankly, miswired and, and focusing on, on certain things or allowing intrusive thoughts to just hammer you, right? Um, I, I was describing it the other day as in the obsessive thought piece is almost almost as if there's a there's a tiny little toddler standing next to you all the time poking you going hey 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 except instead of saying that there's some really horrible things that are just popping in your head all all the time and that is how mine manifests more, which is horrible, but outwardly it's a lot less obvious, right? I'm right. not the guy, the extreme like the monk, right? Uh the, the 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 stereotype we all know of washing your hands and all that kind of stuff. So that was less apparent, but there are things that come out and, and, you know, I'm very lucky. I have a supportive wife who knows 
all right, this is just the the, the way he is. And the biggest one that we that she loves to needle me on is I'm the kind of guy. If people remember the old uh, New York Giants coach Tom Coughlin, who always used to say, if you're five minutes early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. That's me to an extreme. I just I physically it it it, it, it hurts me to be less than early like even on time i get anxious in a way that is hard to tamp down and so it's stuff like that that you know uh can be written off as uh, i'm sorry if i made you anxious because i was on time you were no early. i was early i was sitting <laughs> I know, in here going it's early yeah. i know i saw i was finishing a call I'm like oh shit he's on already I, man <laughs> Every, you know what? You're lucky I was only five minutes early. Um, <laughs> but but so those things can be written off as idiosyncrasies of a person, right? But when it's all of that together, it definitely makes for, um, you know, uh, I, I, I'll say it this way. I wish I had a better therapist at that time. Uh, now as an adult, I've gotten a good hold on most of this. Is it perfect? No, obviously. But I've gotten a good hold on a lot of it. As a teen, my therapist's answer was usually pills, and that was the wrong answer. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, having a psychiatrist versus psychologist makes a difference, too, because pharmacology is always – and I, this is not a – it's a blanket statement, but I'm not call, calling everybody out like that. But for the most part, a psychiatrist – their go-to is what can we do with pharmacology? A psychologist, depending on what type of psychology, cognitive, et cetera, they want to go and see what the root cause of it. Same thing with like medicine. You know, you have a, a integrative medicine that uh, that looks at what the root cause is and trying to address both instead of like, hey, let me give you a shot. Your arm hurts. Let me give you a shot right here. But what's causing it uh, to begin with? And the other thing is, I think we've gotten to a point now where I mean, that's kind of what my business does. It looks at genetic predispositions. So if we know that there are uh, genetic predispositions and, and because you said you have multipliers like OCD with ADHD, right. and there are genes associated with those. And when you went with your lifestyle, when you trigger several of them at the same time, that is exactly how epigenetically it manifests itself. So you can have, uh, you can have, a stressful event. That stressful event can then trigger a a, uh, a gene for PTSD. Now you're sure. replaying that movie. This happened to me last week, and then all of a sudden you have a traumatic event that you push down. Like you know, you're standing in the in the box uh, swinging somebody, and you get hit by the ball. All of a sudden you have a stressful event, and that comes out as a traumatic event too. So it all manifests itself together. And understanding those things, you know, I I always talk about sort of like baby proofing your room where you want to uh, avoid the sharp corners you can do that if you know this upfront about yourself is it perfect no but the more you know about yourself the better uh, even as a relation with your healthcare professional you're empowered to collaborate and instead of going to a doctor and doctor says take two of these and that's it you can right. actually have a, a question that a uh, healthcare professional and say hey what if what about this and uh, so uh, Going back to what you were saying in terms of, uh, you know, your struggles, did your parents realize, like, was it the school thing that, like, uh, you know, having no filter? At what point did they say, hey, you know what, I think we need to go see a healthcare professional? So, um, 
sort of answering that in two ways is that number one, unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of, as you're perfectly laying out these uh, awareness markers, right? I mean, I knew that my, my great grandfather struggled with, with a mental health issue. And that was like all we knew about our family's mental health history. Right. So uh, I didn't have this, which means I couldn't advocate for myself, which means I was just at the mercy of, of these diagnoses. Right. So, um, Definitely underscoring what you're saying about being able to get or getting all the knowledge that you can advocate for yourself. Crucial. But in terms of how they actually decided, I don't know. I was 11, right? And I started seeing someone, and I'm going to drop some BS on you here because you made a really good point about seeing a therapist or, or a psychologist instead of a psychiatrist. Here's what sucks. He was a psychologist. Uh, and unfortunately, he was this really well-revered guy, not only in, in this practice, but in, in my town, uh, my, in Cincinnati. And so he called the shots, and he would tell me, he would send me down to the hall to the psychiatrist, and I would say, doctor, you know, said I need this. And the guy would go, okay. Um, and so I would see the psychiatrist once every couple of months unless we were changing medication. And for all of five minutes, and he would say, how you feeling? And I, I, I've been coached, right? I mean, I had been told what to say by my psychologist. So uh, unfortunately, you're right that, that – um, that guardrail normally or should usually be a good one to keep, you know, uh, in this case, it, it, it didn't exist. There, it was more of a bump than a, than a guardrail. Well, that's so, a great uh, lesson, by the way, that you just said, because I, I, I always thought that there was a separation between. They're supposed the to be, yeah, uh, but, but not in this case. So kids, be aware. <laughs> yep, that's right. The more you know, as they say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so going back um, – Mental health issues, uh, given medication, all that stuff. How did the substance uh, abuse, or uh, you use a different term, which I want to actually uh, ask about the difference between misuse and abuse, because I see your, you know, I refer to it as substance abuse, but I really started reading up on the, the word misuse. So I want to kind of get a, a, an understanding of how you use that and what's the difference. But how, how did that start manifesting itself? Uh, was it with recreational uh, drug? Was it was it actually taken too much of the medication that you were prescribed? How did that? Uh, all the above. Um, so so I took uh, recreate. I started using recreational drugs in middle school, experimenting like a typical teen, you know, early teen, preteen, um, and there wasn't a problem. I I, I I you know drank a little bit. I, I've never been the type of guy to get like drunk, drunk. I mean, I can count on both hands how many times in my life I've been truly blackout, you know, drunk. That's just not my thing. Uh, I did smoke a good amount of weed kind of leading into high school, including my, my first year of high school. Uh, but I, like I said before, was so dedicated to being a, an athlete. I really thought and, and, and I had the chance to be a college level player. And of course, when you're a kid, right, I knew I wasn't going to make the majors. You know, I'm a five, six Jewish dude. I knew that wasn't my chance, but I did have a chance to go play in, in college. And to me, that was like the dream, you know? So I quit using all recreational drugs, um, go in my, my freshman year of high school. So I could focus on being the best uh, athlete I could be. Now here's the irony of that, right? All those kids on the field with me, 
who were going home and maybe smoking weed in their spare time were using less substances than I was every single day with all the medication I was on. So that was the irony of me being so proud of, of being sober. Um, but where the actual problems started were when I was uh, in, in mid, my mid-teens, my therapist, seeing my continued struggles with all the stuff we've been talking about, gave me the diagnosis of uh, mood disorder and eventually changed that diagnosis to bipolar. Now, I didn't have bipolar disorder. He was seeing all of my other problems that were being exasperated by being a teenager and by being highly medicated at this point. So uh, but when I graduated high school, and, and like I said, uh, I had the chance to play in college. I, I got one offer. I skipped it. I didn't want to go to the one school that wanted me. Um, and so that was the end of my baseball dream. And so now I had no reason to stay sober, right? And so I start using recreational drugs, and and they're a lot of fun. Um, I start getting prescribed more medications for my my quote unquote bipolar. Uh, and by the time I'm I'm sort of into my freshman year of college, I am all over the place. I'm 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 drinking a little bit. I mean, I'm a freshman, so of course, but I'm also smoking a lot of weed, trying other stuff, and uh, I'm now on multiple medications for both the ADHD and now this bipolar diagnosis. And that was the, uh, that was the trigger. It, it was, it was this being away from home, not having a reason to stay sober, uh, being pretty depressed because freshman year is hard. No matter who you are, there's going to be bumps. Uh, and now having even more medication at my disposal. Um, so one of the things that we are looking at uh, is drug to drug interaction. And uh, I think people don't understand enough that even with, uh, you know, cannabis, consuming cannabis, if you're consuming cannabis and you're taking certain prescription medication, I know a lot of people that are taking SSRIs uh, for like antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication, et cetera, and they're consuming cannabis. And what they're trying to do is get off of their SSRI with cannabis. Well, depending on what you consume, it can be an inducer. It can be an inhibitor. So you got to be really careful of combining those things together with your own metabolic function, et cetera. So I think it's really important that you, you brought that up because meshing everything together creates all kinds of different uh, experiences. Right. You know, like, uh, it, yeah, all right, uh, you know, MDMA, great. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, it's in phase three clinical trials for, but if you're, if you're taking that uh, quote unquote recreationally, uh, I, don't, I don't like that terminology, but you're taking it as a as a party drug with that. But you're also including your SSRI with that. Well, guess sure. what? There could be an interaction between that. So I, it's really helpful that you you bring that up. Now, so l- let me go back to the question that I was uh, trying to ask uh, before about the use of substance abuse versus substance misuse. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so substance abuse was it has been the term for a long time, and you know there is a longer answer here uh, that is my TED talk from last year, uh, which is about the history of the war on drugs and and how um, that history, which uh, was for for anyone who doesn't know, I, I think it's fascinating. I think it, I'm actually wearing a shirt right now. This is end the war on drugs, but. Um, 
the, the, the history of the war on drugs was manufactured, not with, with Nixon, as we sort of recognize the modern era, right, but all the way back in the 1880s. Um, and it was explicitly from the beginning, I mean, it's in the very laws, uh, a racist and sexist uh, uh, war on people. And yet we, we sort of recognize that. And then we go, OK, but that doesn't that doesn't have anything to do with today. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. A lot of the ways we look at drugs, a lot of the ways that we legislate drugs uh, go all the way back to these initial laws. I mean, the biggest one was in 1914. It's a whole thing. Right. Where this comes into play right now in this in this answer is that the term substance abuse is an antiquated term from this this bygone era when there was a strong belief that substance use was tied to morality, right? If you were an upstanding person, let's read the fine print here, white person, you couldn't struggle with addiction. You, It wasn't possible because to them, uh, this, this, um, uh, you know, they didn't call it addiction. It, it, it was reliance on drugs was a thing for the weak will, the weak, weak moral person. And that's where the term of substance abuse comes from is these people were abusing substances. And so when you actually think about the etymology of that, right, there's nothing in it that is abusive. We think about abuse as the way we use that word now, spousal abuse, right? One of the worst things you can do in our society. And then you you flip that around to substance abuse. Well, the, when I was struggling with pills, the pills weren't forcing themselves down my, my throat, right? I was misusing a substance. That's what I was doing. And the, the pills didn't have a mind of their own. That was all me. I was doing this. And so the term substance misuse we're trying is now being used to replace abuse because what you are actually doing is misusing a substance. And you can do this with anything, right? If I was drinking as an adult with a, with a weak belly, if I was drinking, you know, three gallons of milk a day, that could kill me. And that is, you know, the same thing. Substance, I'm misusing a substance, which in this case is milk. So we're just trying to replace that that term uh, and, and, and knowing that it comes from uh, creation of stigma, I think helps a lot of people go, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I love that, by the way, that I'm going to change my terminology uh, after this as well, because, you know, and you brought up a good point. Like, you know, one of the, uh, you know, graduate papers I I wrote back in school uh, was about the whole, um, the whole, I guess, uh, stigma associated with cannabis. Like, how did it become illegal in the first place, how to become schedule one. And you brought up an excellent point. I mean, there are tremendous racial undertones with, you know, even the way we refer marijuana, it's, it's uh, the Mexican farm workers brought it over. Uh, the jazz uh, musicians would consume it. Uh, the white people would dance. And then the guy, uh, the moral uh, a man uh, would, who's not supposed to abuse substances or misuse substances, but he's drinking, uh, you know, a bunch of martinis uh, all day long, smoking cigarettes because they're wet bars in the offices back in the day. You know, you're drinking all and you're smoking, but you're, you don't have a, uh, you're, you're not misusing, but those are the ones that didn't want their, their white daughters to be dancing right. with uh, the black uh, uh, guys and vice versa and the jazz musicians. So definitely a uh, really, really good call to bring that up. So in, in, in when did you feel that you actually had 
an issue with that because you can recreationally consume college or, you know, people recreationally or uh, consume all kinds of things. When did you realize this is a problem for me? So the, the, before that, the final point, I, I appreciate what you just said about, you know, where cannabis and in, in term marijuana comes from. Uh, we're not going to have time to cover them today, but there is a man who's been forgotten, sadly, by our society, who was one of the worst people ever to live in this country, by the name of Harry Anslinger, uh, oh. who I know you are well familiar with, uh, who is one of the monsters in the history of this country. A lot of the ways that we, I mean, the, the over, current overdose crisis, you can trace a lot of this stuff right back to him. And a lot of the things he said, he was very open in his racism. I mean, he talked about explicitly as you just said white women hanging out with jazz musicians getting pregnant and he was just a horrible human being so uh if you want to learn more about this go read chasing the scream by johan hari fantastic book um there's a couple others but focus on on harry anslinger really horrible human as for my story um I was struggling through my freshman year. I, I ended up transferring before I failed out of my first school, uh, and, and I was smoking a lot. But but the weed, quite frankly, wasn't much of a problem. I mean, I was a freshman in college, so was I overdoing it? Of course I was. But uh, I, I wasn't skipping classes to smoke weed or any of these stupid myths that we have, right? I was skipping classes because I was bored. I was skipping classes because I didn't like school and I wasn't mature enough to be there. Um, so I ended up transferring. And of course it continued because the, the problem wasn't the school. It was me. Uh, but by this point, I'm back in Cincinnati and I'm near my therapist and uh that's a problem, right? I mean, we thought it was a good thing. It wasn't. My therapist was back on his old BS and I'm on more and more medication. And, you know, it's hard to look back and go, okay, I was good until this point, but it's easy to see, okay, by the time I'm 22 in 2008, I am really struggling. I am uh, on more than five different medications every day. I am be I have become I'm misusing all of them and I've become addicted to one of them for sure. Uh, again, hindsight being what it is, um, it's easy to say, okay, maybe this one, but we know for sure I was addicted to one pill. I was misusing all my other ones. Um I, I, I was taking if you've seen the show House, the way he pops his Vicodin, that was me with handfuls of what's called clonopin multiple times a day. And and for those who don't know um, clonopin is a benzodiazepine. It was originally invented to be an anti-seizure medication, uh, and then they found it had a really great, or for some people, um, ability to, to lessen anxiety, and that's why I was on it. Uh, however, clonopin is a very dangerous drug if left unchecked. Uh, I was a 22-year-old kid who was using every medication uh, that I could get my hands on, both the ones prescribed to me and the ones that I was buying off the street. Um, and I was taking so many clonopin every single day uh, that I went above what at the time they believed to be the lethal dosage every single day. I was that hooked on this on this drug. And um, it, it got to the point where uh, that that year I was 22 that I if I woke up and didn't take a handful of medication right away. I mean, I kept them on my bedside table because that's how addicted I was. I would start going into withdrawal and I would spend the morning wrapped around my bathroom floor uh, just in a horrible situation until my body could keep down the medication and then I'd be okay again. Uh, I never got into ejecting, so I wasn't able to bypass my stomach. Um, and so it, it, when I was in those moments of just severe nausea, I would have to force the medication down uh, to get rid of the withdrawals, which was just an awful situation. 
Um, but that's when we can look back and go, okay, that's that's that was bad. That's when the problems were really yeah. hitting, hitting home. I, I'm so glad you brought up benzos because I, I think people don't understand that when a you know when you're being prescribed clozapine or, or benzos in general, they're they're very very difficult to uh, get get off because extremely extremely addictive and. The irony of it, one of the side effects is suicidal thoughts uh, from the, a medication that's supposed to, you know, work on your mental health is actually uh, can be a uh, side effect that has uh, uh, suicidal thoughts. So I, I don't know how comfortable you are, uh, you know, talking about that, but uh, the, the, that is sort of time period start manifesting itself into in those thoughts. Yeah. So uh, that's such a great point. Um, as far as the addiction part, <laughs> there's a joke uh, for those of us who work in this field that if, if someone comes into a, a, a detox facility on both heroin and, and benzos, they get them off the heroin first because it's easier. Uh, that's how that's how strong these things can grip you if you if you end up struggling with addiction to them. Uh, as far as the side effects. So a couple of years ago, I was on a ride along with an EMS uh, a, a person in Charleston, South Carolina, where I was living. And we went to three suicide calls that day, and there was a, a commonality between all three of them, and that was they were on benzodiazepines, and they were not currently seeing a psychologist. They were seeing a psychiatrist and not a psychologist. And I wish more people knew exactly what you just said. Like, this is our PSA. The more you know. If you are not working with a psychologist as well as being on these medications, you should not be on these medications. I know too many people who have lost their lives who all of a sudden had suicidal ideation when it didn't exist before. Again, I'm not saying that these medications cannot help people. I'm simply saying that we know these are side effects. We need to treat them. For me, that was a thousand percent the case. I, I, I was already struggling with depression, right? I'm being treated for with this medication for an issue I don't have. And when that is the case, what happens? But it inflames the things I'm already struggling with. So my ADHD goes out, just goes haywire. My OCD, I, I've never been the, 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 the overt compulsive person. I have a couple mm. of little ones. During this period, I became that guy. I, I cleaned incessantly. I did all the things, right? And then my my depression would sink me to the bottom. And then when I bounced back, I became mania. It was horrible. Um, and I became suicidal. I, I had suicidal ideation. So uh, that was a thousand percent my story. And it led to me attempting suicide twice. Uh, and the second time succeeding and sending myself into an overdose. And it, thankfully, because of a few friends, I did not uh, pass away. So, the, uh, yeah, thankfully, uh, for sure. But uh, in terms of were you uh, taken like how how did you make that attempt was it taking too many uh pills mm -hmm. all once and chasing with alcohol like what was the no, no alcohol there? needed uh <laughs> i i took uh the first day i poured out a, a what would have been a lethal dosage on my on my my table and was going to take it i called a friend as a living suicide note she tricked me into staying on the phone uh, until two friends could rush over and stop me. And and here is where the afternoon special would be. We'd all hug it out and move on with our lives. Of course, that's not reality. The next day, I'm still just as depressed as I was before. Um, I learned my lesson from the day before, and I took the pills first and then called the same friend, which is torture. 
Uh, this time, she calls 911. She, she didn't call the friends again. And unfortunately, because we live in the United States, it doesn't have uh, great mental health services. And this was 2009, by the way. Uh, who shows up at my door but a cop? Uh, who has no idea what to do with me in that situation. Uh, now, making matters worse, I, I, I own the house I lived in, uh, and it was a trap house. I mean, the people who lived there, we were all I was, we were all selling, selling drugs together, using drugs together. We, we had nothing in common. We, we weren't like friends outside of this. We just were drug friends. And so a cop shows up, and what do they do? They all scatter, as, as any person in a trap house would do. Uh, now, luckily, one or two people were still like, didn't run out the back door. And they, they answer the door, and the cop says, I'm looking for Jay Schiffman. And I come downstairs, I'm going into overdose. And uh, again, I just, this is so absurd that this happened. He puts me in handcuffs and leads me out the door. And the last thing I remember before I black out into full blown overdose was he throws me into the back seat and he misses. And I slam my head off the side of off the, the, the top of his car and crumple into the back seat and then black out. And then nothing after that. Uh, and I spent that night handcuffed to a bed at a hospital um, and because I was being treated like a, a criminal. Uh, luckily for me, um, my, my friends had called uh, my parents who were out of town and they called my aunt who is a psychiatrist. She comes running over to the hospital and sits by my bedside all night monitoring my, my, my vitals. Um, I don't remember any of this. I wake up the next day. And it's like a, it, it really was almost a, a movie shot in the sense that I can still remember this. My reality was far away. I can see it down like a long hallway in my mind and, and it just rushes back to me. And I look around, I'm in scrubs and I'm in the intake office of a lockdown unit. And I go, where the F am I? What am I doing here? And uh, that was my home for the next three weeks. Yeah. Um, and then, so when you say two suicide attempts, the first one was the first one you described, and this was the second one. Correct. You actually yeah. succeeded uh, I, to I, a certain yeah. extent. You uh, overdosed. Uh, I, I mean, you just described this scenario where it's it's so difficult for people to believe and understand that people who have an illness, you're sick, you're being treated like a criminal. And, and I, like, I know from the work that I do that people have dependence genes. And I know that one in four people have an opioid dependence gene that, you know, we're, there's two more of us and we all take an oxy because, you know, somebody, somebody's hurt or whatever it is. And one of us, one of the four can be instantaneously, you know, the, the dependence gene can be triggered epigenetically. And now you want this more than anything else. So it's it, understanding that, you know, some people uh, have these predispositions and understanding that it's it's a condition and then be, being handcuffed for it and being thrown, it's it's a ridiculous thing, but it happens every single day still to this day. So I'm, I'm glad we're talking about that because people need to really understand. Um, well, I'm glad you survived, and I'm glad you're uh, uh, not only survived, but you're here to thrive and also uh, share with other people. So what does Choose Your Struggle mean to you? So for me, Choose Your Struggle comes from this idea that, you know, you've heard now I growing up, uh, I had a lot of, of um, 
I had pretty much everything I could ask for, right? I was in a lucky, uh, very lucky situation, very privileged situation where I had parents that loved me. I knew where my next meal was going to come from. I knew there was going to be a roof over my head. Uh, that obviously does not describe every describe everybody, right? I mean, I was very lucky for that situation uh, as a child, and so I had the privilege and 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 the choice to choose what I was going to struggle for. And, and you know, as a, as a child, uh, as a young person, you know, my family was very involved in the community. We did a lot of, of community activities. And, and those were our choices because our, our, our struggles were not forced upon us by, by life. Uh, when I was in my, t- my late teens, early 20s, I lost that ability. My, my, my struggle was to live. My struggle was to, to avoid withdrawal. My struggle was to, to, to you know, try to be healthy. Um, and then I got into recovery. And for me, there was a point of five years into recovery where I recognized that I was healthy again. Uh, my, my body, my brain, my age, my maturity sort of all felt like they caught up with each other. I, I, I was 2015. I'm five years into recovery. Um, and I'm almost 30 years old. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I sort of recognized that what I had regained was the ability to choose again what I was going to struggle for every day. And clearly I made that choice. That was that was to help end stigma and promote education and, and get help for people like me. Um, and I started speaking about that and, and, and you know, doing all that I do now. Um, but what I've done since is try to help people understand that, that, you know, for some of us, it is literally big picture, right? I mean, I'm, again, in a very lucky situation where I've got a great roof over my head, a very supportive wife. We know where our next meal is going to come from. We get to make the choices of what we're going to struggle for. So for us, that choice is big picture. For other people, it can be very small. You know, their life is not in that situation. So they're stuck, you know, every day just making sure they got food, making sure they got a roof over their head. But they've got a little something that they can make a choice. And, and and we all have that, whether it's a very tiny one or a very big one like me, we all have that choice of what we're going to struggle for to some extent. Yeah, I, I, really well said. And you brought up uh, uh, recovery. So uh, and I think you talk about the sort of uh, notion of uh, a one size fits all kind of uh, recovery. And so the first it's sort of a two part question, because I'm curious, is recovery or rehab, whatever you want to call it, is it effective? And why is it effective if so? And how can you not make it a one-size-fits-all sort of model uh, so it can be a much more personalized uh, you know, thing for individuals? Well, so I think um, it's helpful to, to separate. Uh, rehab is, is sort of a, a – a, it can be a program. It can be um, – you know, an, an actual facility, right? I mean, rehab is is more of a, 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 a not a state. A recovery is a state of being, I guess would be a good way to say that, right? So okay. there are people who don't like that term because some people can lead a healthy life and never reach any sort of recovery. And I fully understand that and support that. I, rec- I identify as a person in recovery because 
I was struggling in active addiction. I no longer am. And so for me, that is, I am sort of the, the epitome of what recovery looks like. Um, now, to your, your question, though, yes, we have a problem in this country where we have separated the treatment of substance misuse and addiction from all other health, right? The, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but again, that goes back to that where this uh, the ideas around addiction and substance misuse come from. It was not seen as a health issue. It was seen as a lack of, of morale, of moral su- uh, succession and, and a lot of really ho- harmful and horrible thoughts. And that's why it's separated out. However, we now know that's ridiculous and it should be brought back into the, the medical uh, society. And, and to answer your question of what that looks like, um, I, I point to cancer, right? I mean, we treat every person with cancer to how is best going to treat their cancer. My aunt who struggled with cancer was not treated any way the same as my grandfather who unfortunately passed away from cancer, right? Uh, they had different forms of cancer. They had different treatments. They they are different people. And so he needed one regimen. She needed another. And it, and it worked for her. She's in remission. Unfortunately, my grandfather lost his, his battle with cancer. Right now, if you go to roughly 80% of treatment centers in the United States, they will treat you the exact same, whether you are me who struggle with addiction pills or subscription pills, or you're the person who, you know, one of my good friends here who, who you know, struggled with heroin and meth and all that kind of stuff. It, it, they're completely different substances, and yet we would be treated the exact same. That doesn't make a lot of sense, right? We know, perfect example, for a lot of opioid issues, there is medication that can help people step down or in some cases, you know, be on that for long term to keep that craving at bay. So why would that be denied from that person? It's like we know this is going to be successful. Why would we not give it to them? Um, and so the answer I would say is that it is possible. Uh, we got to pull treatment for addiction back into the medical field and allow it to, to look very similar to the way we, we, we deal with cancer. Yeah. So you're saying a personalized approach based That's on right. uh, maybe even genetic predispositions, epigenetic, uh, understanding what the substance are doing inside your body, because sometimes there is a physical aspect or a lot of times there's a physical aspect it's much different getting off benzos than it is from alcohol uh maybe there's different things you need a softer landing for that uh so yeah okay that makes a lot of sense i i completely agree with you obviously i mean <laughs> my my program is called everything is personal so and that's uh you know that's that's what we focus on as well so i completely agree with you and that should that should be the way that all medicine is is treated right. in a personal way um are you familiar with California sober means? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am familiar with Miss Demi Lovato. Um, <laughs> so here's the funny thing. Uh, for whatever, not for whatever, we know why, but everyone thinks that everybody who's in recovery is stone cold sober. And by sober, we mean AA's definition, which is nothing except for coffee and cigarettes. That's that's the AA definition of sober. What a lot of people don't know is that sober can actually mean a lot of different things depending on who is using the word. There are groups uh, who think AA is too lax for letting their their members drink coffee and smoke cigarettes, right? So the word sober has a lot of uh, mixed up meaning to it. However, there is roughly 20% as of a couple years ago and it's growing – uh, people in the recovery community who are like myself and do not identify as sober. Uh, reason being, 
I am able to use some substances and I'm not able to use other ones, right? I struggle with prescription pills and, and cocaine. Those were my two big ones. I tried everything under the sun. Those were the two that I ever had a problem with. I, I can, uh, I did back in the day, could drink safely. I still do. Uh, I, I, in fact, when we're done here, I'm going to go have a glass of whiskey with dinner because I'm a big fan of whiskey. I don't need 10 of them the way I did my prescription pills or the way that I did when cocaine was around, that I just needed more cocaine. Um, I am an open microdoser. I'm, I'm a strong believer in that. I'm a supporter of, of cannabis. I have my medical card. I don't struggle with addiction or even misuse to any of these. However, that isn't the same for everybody. You know, I have friends who it doesn't matter what it is. You know, they are in recovery from their prescription or per, per, personal issues. And now they drink nine cups of coffee a day, right? I don't know that that's that much better, exactly. but at the same time, <laughs> they are leading the life that is enabling them to, 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 to be a functioning human. So all the power to them. So, Yes, California Sober is was Miss Demi Lovato giving a name to what a lot of us already are, which is basically saying that they are sober except for something. Um, and I guess if you want to, you know, there are people who use that term, and I just want us to get to a point where we recognize that not everybody in the recovery community is sober. It is, like I said, we are uh, – I actually think we're bigger than 25%. I, I think that there's a lot more of us, um, but there are a lot of people who are scared to come out of the – be open about that because uh, we face stigma in the community. I have friends who love me dearly and yet do not think of me as in recovery, right? Or love me – one of my friends thinks that I never had an issue, and I'm like, oh, sweetie, I wish you could see me back then, right? Um, because that's just the way that they've been taught. And most of it's by AA and, and AA's ideas of what recovery looks like and that kind of thing. Um, but I get why more people don't come out. Uh, I mean, Demi Lovato got a lot of hate when she opened up about that, um, about being California sober, uh, which is a great term, by the way. Love it. Um, <laughs> but but it, it, it did bring more light to people like myself who are not sober but are in recovery. Yeah, I, I mean, it goes back to what we just said about personalization and, and the everybody right. has a different thing. And yeah, I've I've dealt with a lot of, uh, you know, AA uh, people that it's abstinence and that's all it is. And I had certain situations, two things. Number one, I had a certain situation where somebody is 27, almost 30 years in recovery and uh, their spouse was diagnosed with cancer and uh, they were now thinking about cannabis and they were struggling, morally struggling with it because like, well, I was taught to abstain, abstain. Well, but what about CBD? Well, no, because that's also, you can't. So, but it was extremely effective for them after they got over those uh, concerns of uh, moral concerns. And then another thing is I was engaged uh, with uh, this uh, uh, recovery rehab center and uh, they were creating a soft landing for uh, people to get off heroin. And they wanted a, a protocol that actually using cannabis as a protocol to get them, you know, it's high THC, something like a, a full spectrum, like a FICO type of oil first, then something of a, a, a maintenance dose and something like that has very little like more CBD. And and they got so much hate from all the communities for that, for the same reason. And and. 
I, I see for me, I understand there's physical dependence because you have you know, genes and all these other things, these drugs bind and receptors, but there's also emotional things. Like some people have uh, predisposition to impulsive behavior. So in, in one of these uh, dopamine stimulating drugs like cocaine, that can trigger a whole series of different things. Like you can go out and I've, I've talked to people like this and know themselves really well and then go out and they say, all it takes is one drink, one drink, and then it's a line of Coke. And then I end up in Vegas after a weekend with hookers and blow everywhere because it triggered everything. My impulsive behavior, my physical dependence, all these different things. So you said it right. Knowing yourself and knowing what you're comfortable with. And we as a community of human beings have to use more compassion and empathy towards people instead of putting everybody in this in this bucket. Oh, you're this person, so you can't have that. Well, everything is, uh, you know, we're all individuals. And if you know yourself, you know, you should empower yourself to do what, what's right for you. Well, sure. I, I personally think that weekend in Vegas sounds like a lot of fun, but I, I get where why why we're we're saying that's not a good thing. So. <laughs> well, what, hookers and blow, may it, I'm sure it's a lot of fun. Can uh, <laughs> end up like been uh, there, yeah. done that. <laughs> yeah, it can end up like Charlie Sheen. You know, yeah, Who that's knows? right. Yeah. Um, so I saw you mentioned um, microdosing. I think you mentioned microdosing. Yeah. So I saw that you had a a certificate from double blind, which was a uh, pretty cool. Like, uh, you know, that's uh, they're fr- friends of mine as well. Um, Madison Margolin actually is a, is a, is a friend and uh, uh, she's one of the creators of the, the, the magazine. Yeah. Actually, she was, it's funny. She did a story on, on me and on us for Rolling Stone magazine, which was like when I was a kid and I that's posted awesome. it on Facebook yeah. and I was like, being a Rolling Stone, I'm a music guy. Like yeah. that is my ultimate. So I'm super That's grateful. Awesome. So, so you're apparently you're a supporter of uh, psychedelics in a way. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that you're utilizing that as part of your, uh, you know, recovery? Well, so first we have to give a shout out to Double Blind. I'm not getting paid to say this. Uh, please tell uh, your friend that, that I'm a big fan. I read. I, I just read the latest issue. I just finished it today. Um, really big fan. I uh, would love to write for them one day. I just I think that they're what they are doing for the psychedelic space cannot be uh, underappreciated. Right. I mean, so Madison, if you're listening, uh, please reach out to. Yes, Jeff Madison, love to fantastic. talk to you. Uh, <laughs> and and seriously, everybody at Double Blind, I've taken multiple of their courses. Um, and sort of generally to people, there is so many great educational opportunities available to us right now online. I've taken uh, courses through Coursera, um, you know, go directly to the source like Double Blind, who are just incredible thinkers doing amazing work. And oh, by the way, taking time out of their day to teach us about it. Yes, please. Right. So cannot say enough good things about places like Double Blind, Coursera, um, you know, uh, um, what's the one in, in Oakland, Oaksterdam, uh, which I've yeah. taken a couple certificates from really love their work. So, so shout out to them. I'm a fan of microdosing um, because two reasons. Number one, I have a long history with, with psychedelics. Uh, when I was at my worst, I was uh, using shrooms really every two or three days um, because when you're in as bad of a situation as I was, and, and I mean for about a year, I was so strongly addicted, was just miserable. My depression was raging. Um, I wanted to get out of my head as much as possible, right? And what does that better than than shrooms? So for me back in the day, they really were a lifesaver. And, and then here I am, I get to my adult life and um, I read the book, uh, was it A Beautiful Day? Was that A Perfect Day by, by 
Oh shoot, what's her what's her name? I'm drawing a blank on the author's name right now. But uh she uh Ayeta Waldeman is her name. She wrote about uh microdosing. She used LSD. Um but this was a couple of years ago, and I've been very interested because I'm such a supporter of psychedelics and because I knew what the the, the, the power they can do uh, for good. So I started doing the research because as a guy in recovery and as someone who strongly believes in using substances correctly, not misusing them, I wanted to know everything I needed to know first and uh, decided I was going to give it a try. And props to my incredibly brave wife, who was has not been a, a substance person most of her life. She was like, this sounds amazing. After reading the same book, I would love to try it too. And I can tell you, I've been doing this now for over a year. Um, I have a mood tracker as part of my mindfulness habit. And I, every day I rate my mood on a scale of one to five. And my average mood has risen in the last year from roughly a, a, a 3.1, which is you know just above average, to closer to about a 3.6 or 3.7. Now, it might not sound like a lot, but over the course of a year, that is a significantly more good days than bad days than there were the previous year. And now, of course, you know other things have happened in my life. Uh, I, I, like I said, I have a very supportive wife. And we have a great life together. Um, but I like to think that a lot of that can be can be thanks to microdosing and the fact that it does have a really um, perceivable impact on my mood. That the downs are not nearly as far down. That the the highs are now uh, and they're not you know off the charts, but they're they're more enjoyable and and. You know, if you're doing it right, you're never noticing the 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 amount of the dose that you're on. You're not tripping or anything. You just are. It's just having the positive impacts for you. Yeah. I, so, um, I completely agree uh, with you. There's a couple examples and, and stories. So, I was working with a lot of veterans who were uh, uh, coming over from Afghanistan. And during COVID, it just hit them really bad. There was a, a, an uptick in uh, suicide and all that stuff. And I have a couple of people who are medics or ex-medics in uh, special forces. And uh, we were just talking about this and they decided to try microdosing with psilocybin, with mushrooms. And it was like night and day. It's a huge, huge change. And there was a study that just came out recently about microdosing and the positive effects uh, of microdosing with psilocybin. All this stuff is happening now. You have the phase three clinical trial of MDMA for depression. That's uh, the MAPS is uh, finalizing hopefully soon. Uh, you have an incredible uh, docu-series, the Michael Pollan uh, just started on uh, on Netflix. I think it's called Change Your Mind. It could be could be wrong about the name of it, but uh, I think it's called Change. How to Change Your Mind. Yeah. Oh, How to Change Your Mind. There it goes. So, I mean, fantastic. And people like Paul Stamets, who for those of you that know uh, Paul Stamets, I mean, he's the guy that walks out on stage with uh, a mushroom hat on. What an incredible uh, wealth of knowledge. I, I think we're in a renaissance right now of understanding all these different substances, plant medicines have been around for thousands of years and how you utilize them. The, the Getting through clinical trials of these things, I think will uh, open things up a little bit more. But what you said before, it's this 
even the, the community, the sober community, uh, they're starting to create obstacles and saying, well, you know, microdosing, you need to abstain from everything to be clean because you can't do those kind of things. So, uh, you know, the community needs to sort of embrace everybody and say, you know, microdosing for some people works really well. And it's been there is a tremendous amount of scientific evidence around that. You can see what it's doing to, uh, you know, people's brains, etc. So I definitely, you know, commend you from uh, for being an activist uh, 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 for microdosing. Thank you. Microdosing is is different for different people. So when they talk yes. about microdosing, I know certain people that can microdose uh, what I would consider a hero's dose. Yeah, and right. and be you know okay with that. Also, be very careful with some of that, you know, uh, speak to a healthcare professional or somebody uh, who understands this a little bit more. Uh, you can probably find resources double by because I've had some really, really interesting, intense experience. I've never referred anything to a bad trip because I don't count them as bad or good. They're, they're always educational, but the intensity uh, ramped up if you take just too much and, right. then, you know, different things. It's a really interesting experience. Start low, go slow. Um, and, and for those who, who want to know the difference, when we talk about microdosing, we're talking about for the different people anywhere from 0.05 grams to to uh, 0.3 at most, right? We're talking about baby doses for most yeah. people. And yeah, like you, I know a couple of people who's microdose. I got a buddy who uses uh, uh, psilocybin so often that now when he doesn't want to have you know the hallucinogenic effects, he take he, he still takes like a couple of grams. And I, I mean that that's a tolerance that I can't even imagine. But you know, for most people, we're talking about. A, a baby dosage here. Yep. So, are you uh, are you a cannabis uh, user still? Is that is that yep. part of your every, uh, every day? Okay. Yep. All right. So, um, do you have? I wanted to ask you about your TED talk uh, too, really briefly. I know we're kind of uh, coming to uh, you know time is uh, is uh, going by fairly quickly. I'm super fascinated and I talked to you for for hours, but uh wanted to so you did a TED talk, but I I I was listening to one of your I think it was one of your podcasts. You were saying the there was technical difficulties uh, during your <laughs> your podcast. So I have two questions. First of all, the whole TED talk, uh, you know, how did that come about and and uh, your experience with that? And let me ask that. And then I had a follow up okay. question. That I said I'm so there were technical difficulties. I never got the recording, which is very sad. Um, I got the pictures, which is great. And so if you <laughs> see me on social media, it's me in front of the TED letters. So so uh, definitely using that to my full advantage. But um, I'll say this about TED. So for those who don't know, TED stands for Technology, Education, and Design. Uh, TED specifically is a platform that highlights those with uh, learned experience. That is what they are looking for. Uh, they want the best and the brightest, the PhDs in the room. That is what TED likes. So for someone like me, who has a PhD in life, as a buddy of mine likes to say, has the learned experience, and then has a little bit of learn, uh, lived uh, learned experience as well. Um, it was hard to get a, to get a TED talk. Uh, I was a finalist. I probably applied fifteen times, twenty times. I was a finalist four times. And every time was one of the last people cut. And then you look at the roster and it's all people with, with you know, PhDs. And then what was my ass going to be doing next to all those people? But then 
This last time, the fifth time, I'm a finalist, and I get it. Um, and and not only do I get it, I'm the headline speaker. And, and there were two reasons. Number one, they specifically the, the the I knew the organizer this time, and that helped obviously immensely. They already were aware of me, so that's number one. But they were specifically looking for a person with lived and learned experience because they didn't want to be like all the other TED events that are just those. I mean, if you look at their the, the, the TED page, it takes a while until you find somebody who doesn't have a PhD or at least a, a, a very strong master's from like John, John Hopkins. They want the best and the brightest. And now I don't love that, but that's that's fine. That's who they are. They're, they're not looking for guys like me. They're looking for the people who have really strong resumes. So it was a great experience. It opened the doors to a lot of different things. When people hear Ted, they obviously, you know, you must know what you're doing. Um, I was nervous before my TED Talk because I was going into this stuffy crowd because it was a TED Talk. Uh, and I was going to tell everybody that not only did they need to start being nicer to people who use drugs and people who struggle with addiction, but by buying into the propaganda around us, they were in their own way without knowing it. I wasn't going to blame them. Buying into over a century's worth of racism, sexism, and general uh, disregard for humanity. Um, so I was nervous as hell. Uh, I did not think it was going to be well-received. And uh, it was fine. It was lukewarm. There were people who were not happy um, and and were very... Uh, made that known. And then there were other people who were like, this blew my mind. I had no idea about the history of the war on drugs. Um, you know, guys, like we said, I, I mean, I talked about Anslinger, I uh, went all the way back to the 1800s and no, people don't, don't know about this stuff. And so uh, it was sort of a 50, 50 split. Um, but, but, you know, if you reach a couple of people who make those changes, it's worth it. Uh, and so I, I am definitely glad that I did it. Yeah. It's, it's on my list of things to, uh, uh, do at some point, but uh, I also wanted to ask you about uh, the anxiety that may have been provoked when you realized that you had some technical issues and, and due to the struggles that you had before, like, how did you overcome that? Um, so, because I've had situations happen yeah. on stage and all that stuff, you know, whatever, whatever, but I, I, I don't have that, that kind of challenge, but I know some people I've seen this before where People actually freeze and yeah. start having physical panic attacks. You can see the sweat start pouring <laughs> off them. So th describe that experience. So <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Um, so here's what literally happened. I, I, I'm the last guy. Like I said, I'm the headline speaker. And we all had those mics that clip onto our backs and then have a little thing next to our face. So if you look at my pictures, I have that. And I'm also holding a microphone because – my mic didn't work. Uh, it was on. We worked in testing, and I get out there, and something happened. Um, so that's the actual day of problem. Now, later, it turns out there was also a camera problem, which is why I never got the recording. Uh, not, the, not the best TED event. I'll say, I'll say that. There were some <laughs> problems. For me, I'm, about, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my introductions when it's obvious that no one can hear me, right? I mean, if you look out in the crowd, you can tell because – people's faces change when they realize, oh, there's a problem. You know, uh, even if even though they're not intentionally trying to be distracting, their faces change. And, and so I went, oh, shoot. Um, 
Now, luckily, the, the organizers were on it. They had the backup mic ready. They come running on stage. Uh, and there was a moment of, oh, man, like we're already, this is a bad start, you know? Uh, and since I knew my speech was going to be a tough one, there was a moment of, well, shoot, like what? Um, I'm starting on a bad foot and I'm also about to 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 drop some stuff on people that they're not, I don't think they're really here for. Uh, luckily for me, um, I love this topic, as you can probably tell. I could talk about the history of the war on drugs forever. I read endless books about it. If, if, if you were you know, watching me, there's a bookshelf behind me full of books on the war on drugs. Uh, like I said, I'm wearing a shirt about it. I love this topic. And so for me, it, it yes, I was nervous. And in fact, I bet if you had a recording, you could hear the dry mouth in, in my mouth at the time. But, but it almost served in the opposite of I was like, well – all bets are off now. Like there's already been an issue. I'm just going to do my thing as if I'm sitting here talking to people about my favorite topic and we'll see what happens. So, um, you are, you are, it's a good question. And I was really lucky that day that I was talking about something that I, that I know and love. Yeah. I, I and you made a great point. I think that's, uh, for everybody, you know, who's doing public speaking, it's, it's much easier to talk about something that you really know that the subject and you have some passion about, even if you're nervous, you can still kind of rely on, you know, your knowledge. So, so funny story about that. My, my mother before me was a professional speaker. Um, she, one time she's giving a speech at, at a women's conference. That's what she did. She, her, her, her subject was women empowerment and that kind of thing. So, there was a scheduling snafu, and she was supposed to go before Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton then gets flipped and goes before my mother. And so my mother gets opened for by Hillary Clinton, right? So she is just freaking out, right? That this is now – she's the headliner now after Hillary Clinton. So when I get into this, I asked her about that, and I was like, how do you, you know, calm yourself? How do you – whatever, like, in that moment – and she gave me some advice that she thought was good advice. And I disagree. But the advice was <laughs> all I did was remind myself that I was going to be shaking and people were going to notice. And I went, and? <laughs> and she was like, no, that was it. That's all I needed. And I was like, I don't. I don't understand. How is that helpful? And she was like, look, if you just embrace the fact that you're going to be nervous, people are going to notice, and then you move on from it. And I was like, okay, like you're a robot. That's fine. Um, I I don't think that's awful advice, and I'll tell you why. From from an anxiety standpoint, a lot of anxiety is caused by the unknown. So if you you know, oh, this is going to do this, and you kind of convince yourself – then the anxiety goes away. Even if it's going to be shitty, hey, it's going to be shitty, but I know it's going to be shitty, so I'm not going to be surprised. So uh, you know. That's fair. That is a fair interpretation of my mother's Shout out robot. to your mom. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I have a couple of questions uh, left that I ask all uh, my guests. Um, so please describe your first experience with cannabis. Oh, man, fun story. Uh, I was in either late sixth grade or early seventh grade, which is too young, too young. But but, you know, that's just the way it was. Uh, I was in my buddy's basement um, and he, another one of our friends had had um, uh, obtained some 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 weed from uh, one of his older brothers. Right. And 
we all went out back in his basement and smoked. And I don't remember myself, uh, you know, I remember being sort of, I guess, giggly in, in the kind of thing you, you're going to do when you're, and, you know, what would I have been, 12, 13, getting high for the first time. Um, but I do remember, you know, some of my other friends just were the stereotypical, uh, you know, stoners from, from like, if you watch, um, uh, what was the one with Dave Chappelle uh, in, in the 90s? Um, you know, where they, where we, they go to the store and they're just these stereotypes of, of stoners, you know, it, it, that was the sort of thing. And it was a wonderful experience. We were safe. We were in someone's home. So we weren't going to, you know, nothing bad was going to happen to us. Um, and I can, de- I can tell you this, you know, some people say you don't get high your first time. That was not the case for me and my friends. <laughs> we got very high. That's funny. Um, so I, I'm a big music uh, guy and, uh, half baked was the name. Of the, half, thank the you. Half baked. Yes. Yeah. So I, I love that movie. It's great. Yeah. Uh, so being a big music guy, do you remember what the very first concert that you attended was? Of course. Um, my dad on my 10th birthday took me to see my favorite band at the time, which was Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh, and to this day, uh, 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 Hootie and the Blowfish, not Darius Rucker's country stuff, but his, the I was going to ask you, did nah, you listen to nah, any nah, nah, not, not for me, but classic Hootie. I'm talking, you know, I was, this was 1996. So, so mid when they were first coming out, uh, classic Hootie still has a special place in my heart because that's what, that was my first concert with my dad. I would say, uh, classic, uh, Hootie is an oxymoron, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, you no, know, I like, I, I like Hootie. I, I, the best thing about Hootie is that you can sing it without any consonants. It's all just, <laughs> it's just a bunch of vowels. And, and, uh, you know, for the 90s, that was good stuff. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Uh, well, how about album? You remember first album that you bought? Uh, same answer. Um, Hootie and the Blowfish Cracked Rear View. Uh, but that was given to me. Uh, so that was my first CD. Um, I can say for 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 absolute certainty, the first one that I bought was one of I still think one of the best albums to to be released in the '90s, and still one of the greatest hip hop albums of all time. And that was Bone Thugs and Harmony's East 1999, which is a hip hop just legendary album. Uh, still a giant Bone Thugs fan. Um, that- that was to this day. I, I still think that is one of the best albums of, of all time. So I went to a Bone Thugs party. I think this is maybe it's in the middle of COVID. I don't know. In the last couple of years, and uh, this was I think it was Lazy Bone. It was coming out with his own cannabis line. Nice. So to give you sort of a visual of this, the party was just crazy. Millions of people everywhere. They had a tattoo artist that was tattooing people at the actual party, which I didn't think was very sanitary, but whatever. But this was the funniest thing. Granted, this is just, I think it was right at the beginning of COVID. Uh, the, you know how they have like a luge, like an alcohol luge, sure. where it's an ice thing where you put your mouth down and they pour this thing. They had one for weed. I've never seen anything like how that. How is that possible? A weed luge. Uh, so it's like, it's like, it's like a, a big bong almost that they light the top and you put your mouth in the bottom of it and you suck and everybody sucks the same thing during COVID. They also performed. Uh, I thought it was a party. Awesome. That would be, (laughs) I, I just, you know, to this day, I still think that there was an era there where bone thugs changed what hip hop and, and really music was, and they don't get enough credit for that. So big shout out to bone thugs and harmony. 
Are you listening to anything uh, interesting today? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So uh, I am a giant hip-hop guy, if you can't tell. And I really don't love sort of where hip-hop has gone as a genre. Um, But there are a couple of creators who are making some of the best music that I've ever heard. And and I would say shout-outs to, you know, Kendrick Lamar, um, uh, uh, Childish Gambino, huge fan of Childish, um, uh, Chance the Rapper. And then my personal, I think, favorite right now is a guy that more people need to be listening to, and that is Burna Boy. If you're not listening to Burna Boy, he is the number one recording artist in all of Africa. He's Nigerian, uh, and he's become this crossover hit. Um, I'm seeing him live for the first time in a couple months. I cannot wait. Giant Burna Boy fan. Very cool, yeah. Uh, he's got a couple of new... Uh, he definitely crossed over... Uh, to you know, quote unquote pop. So that's uh, definitely uh, cool. I'm going to see Kendrick uh, in always next good. Month, I think yeah, yeah it's again fantastic. Um, what has cannabis meant in your life? Well, so when I was at my worst, we didn't really talk about this, but I was smoking a lot every day. And I was doing that because I was feeling so horrible from these medications that I was on that cannabis was the only thing making me feel better. And I actually wrote an article. Um, for the publication uh, uh, Yes Magazine came out about a month ago, in which I talked about how ludicrous this this separation that we've always had between sort of illicit and legal drugs is. And I used myself as an example that the thing causing me the most harm I was getting from a doctor and from from my drug dealer was CVS, right? And the thing that everybody was telling me to get off of, the thing was actually helping me. I was buying from a shady you know dealer down the street, and that was cannabis, right? So to me, cannabis was my was my like lifesaver at this time. And uh, now as an adult, it's a big part of my my mental health and mindfulness practices. Um, I smoke mostly high CBD with a little bit of high THC mixed in. Um, big fan of 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 you know. I learned about this as an adult. I wish I had known when I was younger about that because I have a baby tolerance and the ability to get the the benefits without being so high that I can't function is wonderful. So uh, I just wish more people got the education that I've been able to get as an adult uh, earlier in their lives and and, and in more areas where this is still not talked about openly. Very cool. Um, All right. Bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. (laughs) Um, Shouldn't surprise you if anyone can see in the room behind me right now. It's very similar. Uh, Although instead of, you know, high price memorabilia, my room was covered in pages torn out of hip hop albums or hip hop, excuse me, magazines. So uh, advertisements for albums, pictures of rappers, uh, a lot of that kind of thing. I had a couple of women on my wall. Like I had a Jessica Alba poster because I was a guy in the nineties. Um, <laughs> and I was also a big, I'm a big NBA fan. I've been a fan of Paul Pierce my entire life, the, the former Boston Celtic. So uh, I had a poster of him, but for the most part, 90% of it was covered with hip hop pictures. Got it. Very good. So, uh, Jay, where can people uh, contact you, find out more about you, uh, social, website, whatever you want to share? So I'm Jay Schiffman or Choose Your Struggle on on all social media. Search me there. Uh, My websites are Choose Your Struggle and jayshiffman.com, which is J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com. 
I, I, my weekly podcast is pausing this week uh, at, for for a while. I'm doing some enough enough other things that uh, I'm going to put that show on hold. Uh, but that is also called Choose Your Struggle. But the one that everyone should go out and listen to, and I'll give this plug real quick, is I did a documentary podcast on a woman that I admire by the name of Sarah Laurel, who started a harm reduction recovery housing organization here in Philadelphia called Savage Sisters. And her story is incredible. Um, she she struggled with addiction and and came back to create this incredible organization that I am very lucky to be on the board of. And the series is called Choose Your Struggle Presents Made It Season 1 Stay Savage. You can search for it wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, it's a 10-episode documentary podcast series, and I loved making it, and the, the reviews have been incredible. If you want to change the way you think about addiction and actually hear someone's personal story, check out that series. Amazing. Jay, thanks so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it, brother. Thank you. I love being here. I knew coming in, I told you this was going to be a good one, and I'm glad uh, it, it turned out to be that way. Yeah, and, and thanks for the shout-out to my shirt, because <laughs> it is MF Doom's birthday, which we mentioned before we got on, but yes. I'm wearing an MF Doom shirt. <laughs> Big Sky Point, happy birthday to MF Doom. Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.